The Hit Mix 107.5 FM The Power Station with Colin Curtis
1968. Uh, although we're actually in 2023, we're in 1968. We're inside the Golden Torch in Tunstall, and uh, tonight, uh, tonight's story, which is going to be two parallel stories, both Tim and myself. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, Colin. He's here. He's here, Mr. I'm here. Mr. Ashley or Ashley Bendy or one of his other pseudonyms <laughs> that he sneaks in under. Um, welcome along if you've joined us on HitMix for the first time. This is a, a tribute show to the one and only Mr. Keith Mitchell. We're going to tell two parallel stories, obviously, the time that I knew Keith, which was from 1968, and those three records that we started off with tonight, which was, of course, the fantastic Billy's Bag from Billy's Preston. Uh, and then straight into uh, Charlie Rich, Lovers After Me, which... Uh, was kind of the tie-in when I first met Keith when, when you know, I'd, I'd been going in the record shop, which was two doors away. It's in Kids Grove. Uh, I was living in a pub called the Queen's Head, and two doors away was uh, Steel Brothers. I've actually found a photograph of it. I will put it up tomorrow on the thread. And um, I used to go in there and order some records. I used to have these... Um, kind of pamphlets that opened up with, you know, the new releases for that particular time. And as I'd leave the shop, the guy would say, oh, Keith's ordered some of these. I didn't take much notice of it the first few times. And then eventually he said, oh, Keith's coming in in a minute. And I said, well, okay, well, I'll wait around and, and see who this guy is. And that was it, really. Two doors away from where I lived, I met this guy who actually lived 500 yards from my front door. And that was 1968. That was the first time I met Keith Mitchell. And uh, he, he was 18, I was 16. And that was the beginning of uh, the relationship that carried on for... Well, until until sadly Keith passed away um, two years ago. Um, so Tim, what we're going to do is I'm, I'm I've run my story with three records into my story, but also Tim's got a story that picks up around what year, Tim? Uh, seventy two, seventy three, I guess. And your first uh, your first meetings with Keith, your first. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, I, I just knew the name Keith Minshall. I suppose some older guys who you know went to the torch and so on. So it didn't mean a lot to me, but I first physically met him uh, one summer Saturday when I got a little bit of spare money. And uh, I'd been told by various people that, you know, if you wanted to buy soul records, you should go to Buse in Burslem, which, you know, as you know, a toy shop downstairs, records upstairs. And they were the kind of records you, you weren't going to be able to buy from, I'm trying to think of the shops at the time, Blood Lloyd or Mike Lloyd or whatever it was at the time. You couldn't get some of these things there. And specifically, the one I really wanted was Philip Mitchell, which I think had become not only, it, it was a, obviously a big Torch record, which I didn't know because I didn't go to the Torch, but it was also a record that was big in the youth clubs and so on and so forth. So I wanted this record badly. Anyway, on this particular sunny Saturday in June... And I must have been about 15, I think. And I walked up the stairs of the toy shop to the record part of it, and there was you and Keith behind the counter. As I recall, you didn't say anything. I think you were just messing around with some records. That sounds uh, nothing new there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got a couple of grunts off Keith, which passed for conversation. Uh, I told him what I wanted, because you used to, have, you used to have the list, didn't you, on the wall? That's right. Above, sort of above, above and behind the counter. So... I said to Keith I wanted 6 by 6 Earl Van Dyke, Sweet Soul Music, Arthur Connolly, and Free For All, Philip Mitchell. And he got all three and he handed them to me, again with another grunt, gave me the change, and we were all done. That was it. And that was the first time I actually met this person who, you know, 
was Keith Minshall. Well, Buse became uh, a kind of local institution, didn't it? Because, I mean, that was probably one of the first shops that um, locally that started to stock the imports heavily. I know uh, Mike Lloyd and um, Terry Blood Shop st- yeah, w- were later down the line. But at that point, that, w- that would have been the only place to go, absolutely. It was the only place to go. And uh, you know, for, for Keith to find somewhere where he could actually share his passion with people and, and you know, and yeah, he was emptying the wallets, but that side of it didn't didn't matter to him. The fact that, you know, other people were getting off on the music. He talked about uh, Free For All there by uh, Philip Mitchell. Also a Blackpool Mecca record as well, Tony Jebb era in, that, uh, in those early days. And then I think the interest on the Northern Soul scene definitely fueled labels of the time. I mean, you know, the beginning of the show, we're playing records uh, uh, on present, on, well, Let's Copper Group, which came out in the UK on Beacon. You got Beacon, you got President, and then you got J Boy, and 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 they were really cashing in with beating rhythm. All all these other, you know, big. Well, it wasn't Northern. We called Northern Soul at that time, but these big underground '60s soul records. So uh, I'm going to play uh, five records from Tim now that uh, represent where it went from there uh, with this connection with Keith, and also locally, of course, as well as. Uh, the Golden Torch. In 1967, I signed and played in uh, Tiffany's in Newcastle, uh, which back then was Crystal Ballroom. And downstairs, of course, the Bally High with uh, John Murphy. Plenty more chat about John as well. But this is uh, on Tim's side of the story. And five records coming your way. Hope you're going to enjoy. You can join us on chat room if you wish. Uh, we're up there on Facebook on my page. So if you type in Colin Curtis or Colin Diamond, D-I-M-O-N-D, you can get in on that as well.
really doesn't get more electric than that, does it? I mean, that's about as electric as it got. I mean, that, that kind of tempo was very much about the torch all nighters. But we're talking about Tim's story at the moment. Tim's story, this is going to be about 1974. This was happening at Tiffany's in Newcastle. And, uh, you know, I've already said the original Tiffany's DJ, uh, John Murphy, which are you know, from about 68. Uh, and John was, of course, one of the first people who took a coach to Blackpool Mecca and opened up more doors for Stoke on Trent. This kind of growth of uh, of Northern Seoul uh, was was happening, you know, on different levels right right across the country. But tell us about the records you just played and the memories for you. Yeah, obviously, uh, we've covered the free-for-all. Actually, on that day in Buse, I also bought, I think I said, 6x6 and Sweet Soul Music. But I think free-for-all would have to be I guess my first recognisable Northern Soul record, I suppose. And then, following on from that, really, I suppose I was bumping into Keith and hearing Keith's spots at places like the Heavy Steam Machine. Yeah. And then, of course, word was out, you know, look, if you're into that, you need to be going to Sunday night's Bally High. And I think, if I'm right, Colin, didn't they end up having a Thursday night session as well there? It, it was originally a Thursday night session. Uh, okay. when, when, I, when I started there, Thursday night... Um, was the only night they would give me. Um, that was the sole night. That was with John Murphy. Um, but John couldn't always get there on Thursday, neither could I. And, uh, you know, I used to play cricket as well at that time. So sometimes I'd come in late and then only he'd suspend me for two weeks. I mean, you know, which, which was hurt him more than me because, you know, nobody had the records. So no. it, wasn't, it wasn't a straightforward place. I mean, you know, they had to learn about, you know, this, this new type of DJ that got records that nobody else had got. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, the, yeah, the Thursday night and the Sunday night took, took on as well. And um, the Sunday nights just grew exponentially, just huge. It was fantastic. You know, I mean, four or five hundred people on a Sunday. And, and when you think uh, the period you're talking about, I mean, uh, there was myself, there was John Murphy, uh, that developed into Keith and myself. It developed later, of course, into Soul Sam and Pep and, and myself. Uh, and that was all downstairs in the Bali High Tiffany's. But just talk, talk us through those five records that we just listened to. From your, you yeah. like you, the, the, the Prince Philip Mitchell, yes, um, that was the one. But uh, I mean, Prince Philip Mitchell, I'm standing, um, were huge at the torch, and um, you know, particularly at the All Nighters, and, and obviously Larry Williams and Johnny Watson was huge at that time as well. Um, Romeo and Juliet was much more of a Tiffany's record; it wasn't a torch record at all. Well, I, th I think I think for me, you know, as a young kid going there and hearing those kind of records. I think what struck me was you got a whole bunch of things like Too Late, The Superlatives, I Still Love You, Reflections Like Adam and Eve, um, I Got the Fever, that were all like 100 mile an hour, backdropping, spinning, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just amazing to see. And I, I think then that's for me when the magic began that I, I was starting to be caught up in something that was truly amazing to me anyway. And, and I was still at school at the time, so it'd be like, you know, Sunday night there, school the next day, and, and the school I went to, you know, most people were into other kinds of music, and they kind of laughed at soul. So it wasn't something I really spoke much about in school, but it was starting to become a, a real passion for me. 
I think that was a, that, that was an issue for a lot of people who, who, who were around me as well. You know, why do you have to go to Blackpool? Why do you have to go to Blackburn? Why do you have to go to Birmingham to, you know, to listen to this music? And um, yeah, it, it was something that was evolving. I think a lot of people didn't didn't understand how it was evolving. I'm not sure we did completely understand uh, how it was evolving. But certainly in Stoke-on-Trent, I mean, you've got the history from uh, the 72 Club. You've got um, the Magic Roundabout in Burslem. You've got the Golden Torch you've got Tiffany's and, and as you say you, you come in and after these things and, and like anybody who, who, who gets onto a scene and finds somewhere that they like that is their perspective on it and that's what we're trying to do tonight is uh, is build some different perspectives but 1972 Tiffany's Newcastle these were the live acts Arthur Connolly in 1971 James and Bobby Purify 1972 Millie Jackson Otis Laville 1972 the Ronettes, 1972. Jackie Wilson, 1972. I was infamously um, sacked at that moment, but managed to get in through the back door. And on that day, Jackie Wilson's bass player was actually William Bootsy Collins, which is, you know, looking back, that was absolutely incredible. But Jackie Wilson, 1972 Tiffany's on a Tuesday night. Fontella Bass, 72. Chuck Jackson, Thelma Houston, J.J. Barnes, Gene Knight, Frederick Knight, Jimmy James and the Vagabonds, Bobby Hebb. I spent all that afternoon, uh, you know, talking with Bobby Hebb, and he didn't do Love, Love, Love. He said he couldn't even remember the words to it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it was all about Sonny for him. It was all about, you know, the big hit and yeah. working around that. And he, he, it was just him and the guitar, really. Uh, Carolyn Franklin, Mary Wells, you know, I mean, so many people, Major Lance, inevitably, uh, October uh, 1972, Doris Troy, uh, Fontella Bass, Arthur Conley, the real thing. I mean, it was just unbelievable, unprecedented, you know, because when Mecca, because the organisation was all over the country, when, when these acts were coming into the country, they would play at all the Meccas that could actually facilitate them. So this was your introduction. You weren't a DJ at this point. You're just collecting music. And and w what about the music collection beyond views? Once once you got beyond views, where did you start looking for music then? Well, I think as soon as I started then to go to venues, obviously you were bumping into people. I mean, there were people who turned up on, on a Sunday night at the Bally High with boxes of records. So, you know, I'd be looking through those. And then you're into a whole new world of, you know, people giving you tips, people, you know, you're asking questions, you know, Sam and Kitty, I've got something good, where do I get that, what is it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I've got to say, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest, I didn't really know, I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't know, I didn't care what the records were on, I didn't care about labels, originals, I didn't know about any of that stuff. To me, it was just, I loved what I was hearing and I wanted it in my own home, I wanted to own it so I could listen to it in my own home. It was, what, it, it, what it was on was, was just neither end of that. It wasn't an issue for me. I didn't even understand all that. I, I don't even think I understood who was who. I, I mean, over time, you, yeah, that, that guy there, that's Colin, and that guy there, that's Keith. And, you know, but, but really, I was just going there, absorbing the music, going home with a head full of it, and then wondering how it's going to buy it all, you know. So. Well, well, I think I think that was the same for all of us. I think if we'd have known, you know, what, what was actually developing and, and and been able to to point it down, and as you say, I think 
there was a breed of DJs and there was a breed of collectors, and I think I think the labels and uh, over time and certainly nowadays, obviously the you know the, the actual state of the record is it BG plus is it excellent? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. back in those days, you didn't care if you got a copy if it hissed a bit. No, nobody, nobody cared. No, you just you just wanted to own the record and as you say, play it at home. So we're on seventy four. I'm going to take you back now. I'm going to take you back to the early days of Tiffany's and also the early days of Keith Mitchell and myself when we were playing at Clough Hall Youth Club. Yes, in kids. Grove, Cloughwall Youth Club, on one deck behind the kitchen counter, there's a deck inside a cupboard, and you'd put the record on, and Keith would turn to me and say, Kid, go on and see if anybody's dancing. It's <laughs> amazing. Would there be anybody dancing?
taking you back to the beginning days down in the Bally High and also, of course, uh, uh, the Golden Torch. I mean, these records were starting to come through. Imports were starting to appear because 1968, I mean, that's uh, when I moved to Kidsgrove to the Queen's Head pub in Kidsgrove and Keith and I were both buying Blues and Soul, uh, buying records out of Steel's Electronics in, uh, in Market Street. Uh, Keith was living in King Street and later moved to... Uh, what was it? White Whitehall Avenue, I think it was called. Um, that that was literally a few hundred yards from where he was on King Street. But 1968, for instance, I mean, going to the Torch and also playing at Tiffany's, um, you've got you know Sly and the Family Stone. Dance of the Music came out in '68, and we've just played Minnie Epperson, which uh, was '68 release. I remember Keith and I deciding to collect the Action label which is red and yellow uh, hypnotising kind of design <laughs> on it, you know. <laughs> you get hypnotised just watching it. But, I mean, Wilmer and the Dukes, Little Carl Carlton, uh, you know, just so many fantastic artists. Um, Bobby Williams, Roy Lee Johnson, and over 68 and 69, there was 48 releases. <laughs> I was flat broke every week, uh, you know, trying to keep up because the action records were dropping in there pretty much, um, you know, every single week. Um, there was something coming new on action. Of course, a lot of these were on imports, but we were learning, as you've said before, we were learning retrospectively and uh, finding out about the imports later. I mean, 69, for instance, D.D. Sharp, what kind of lady coming out on uh, British action? And then uh, from 48 onwards, of course, they changed the design from that fantastic red and yellow design to a horrible yeah, black and green design. <laughs> and we just played you three records there, Train Keep On Moving, I'm going to play that especially for John Murphy, and uh, also for Bob Morris, uh, who's still getting better, and uh, hopefully will continue to do so. And, uh, you know, that, that, that whole period, um, you know, from the music that we're playing here tonight, trying to, trying to fit together all the pieces of the jigsaw that were part of the continuing story of Keith Mitchell and the evolution of Keith Mitchell, if you will. So tell us now, where are we going now? Tell us tell us where we're going now musically. Yeah, so <clears throat> September 76 is when I started to go to Wigan Casino All Nighter, which was my first All Night. I never went to the Torch. And um, anyway, that completely captivated me as well. So, you know, by then I was, I was knee-deep in it. I was completely immersed in this whole, you know, Northern Soul thing. And um, nothing else mattered, to be honest. And, was, and this was taking all your money everywhere. It was, was taking it every, every penny I'd got and a, and a lot that I hadn't got, you know. And um, while I was still living at home, I was defaulting on the seven quid a week board that I should have been giving my mum, you know, and then making excuses <laughs> at the, the end of the month about why it wasn't forthcoming. Like, it was all going on records, you know. And I think at, at one point, there was even a call to my house from the bank manager of the co-op to complain about the, my unauthorised overdraft and that. My mum took the call. So, you know, it wasn't going down well. And, you know, as far as my mum was concerned, I was, you know, I was halfway on my, on my way to hell, I think. <laughs> but, but, you know, I was, I was loving it. And uh, so anyway, yeah, I, I'm knee-deep knee in this, you know, Wigan Casino every Saturday night lifestyle. So come 77, I think it was, um, Keith was, I'd been still obviously going to the Bally Eye on Sunday nights as well. And Keith was promoting uh, all dayers at TIFFs on a, on a Sunday, once in a while. And at one particular Sunday, Sunday's event, he'd said to me, do you want to DJ? Now, I mean, this was an amazing thing. You know, everybody wanted to DJ, I suppose, at some point. And he was my big chance. And, you know, I felt really honoured and privileged and everything else. So I snapped his hand off and said, yeah, of course, you know. 
So there was me, and I thought I was going to make a big splash. Now, the record I just acquired, which was a big record, and it, it wasn't easy to get hold of, and I loved it. And it was big at Wig and all the rest of it. It was the channel, as you love, makes me lonely. Yeah. So I went on uh, playing things like the Chandlers. And to be fair, the spot went okay. You know, it wasn't amazing because that crowd, as you know, traditionally, they're an oldies crowd and the ch things like the Chandlers were kind of newies, you know. But it was okay. You know, I was reasonably happy with it. Anyway, at some point mid-spot when I thought I was doing okay, some guy came up to the decks and said, Hey, mate, can you play something we know? <laughs> and I said... That's, I a said story. That's a story about your ear. <laughs> yeah. And I said, like what? And he said, theme from Joe 90. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, it sounds stupid now, but things like that were actually being played because, you know, as instrumentals, because they were fast, had the right beat, and people were prepared to dance to them, which sounds ridiculous now. But, you know, it was going on. So, of course, you know, I just basically blanked him and carried on with the spot. But I think that was the beginning and end of any real enthusiasm that I had for, for DJing. But, but anyway, the channels now is why I've chosen that, that particular record, because it has that memory. And as I say, you know, it was Keith, Keith giving me my first proper professional DJ opportunity, you know, probably the first and last, really, yeah, but meaningful I think, I think, one. I think, but I think it is that learning process to un to understand. I mean, that you, you simply can't go on and just play what you want. That has, no. There has to be a balance. But you have to introduce uh, your own personality musically and, and you know, your own personality anyway. That's right. And I yeah. think it's a combination. So, so to take it all on board in one set, that was never going to happen. No. But this is the Chandler's.
Uh, it doesn't get more classic than that. Absolutely brilliant Northern Soul. Two together. Tell, tell, tell me about both of those. Yeah, I mean, the Chandlers, uh, I think it was a little bit of a different kind of Northern because obviously it's got those stop and start, you know, guitar breaks in it, which, which worked well. But it definitely wasn't, you know, 100 miles an hour, which was obviously typical, certainly the casino uh, sort of playlist back then. But, it, you know, soulful record, danceable, you know, everybody loved it. Certainly the collectors loved it. Um, the significance of the Jock Mitchell that you played there was that at that very same all day, when I came off and do my spot, my DJ spot, Keith had got a box of records for sale and I had a look through them and, and I saw this Jock Mitchell. Anyway, it didn't mean anything to me. I just thought, you know, same label as Duke Browner, which obviously everybody loved, you know, crying well, well, over well, you. Well, people used to come up, um, you know, when I played this record, and they'd, they'd look at the label and see it, and they'd say, oh, is, is Duke Browner on the other side? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, so I looked at it, I thought, oh, that looks interesting. So, anyway, I said to Keith, I said, I pulled it out and said, Keith, is this any good? And he said, yeah, it's okay. So on the, strength, on the strength of that wordy, comprehensive recommendation, I then bought it. It was two quid. Now, of course, now it's a very expensive and sought-after record. But when I hear it, you know, I can't help but think about Keith and, and his minimal description of it, basically. So that, that's th why I, I think, played it. I think prob probably based on, on dance floor success, though. I mean, even, even for Keith, because, I mean, I think he probably would have appreciated how good the record was, but he's selling it to somebody who he thinks, you know, wants something that is going to get a dance floor reaction and that wouldn't necessarily have done so well I can't remember ever filling the dance floor to, to that record no. even though it's one of the classiest Northern Soul records absolutely fantastic music the next three tracks I'm going to play and many thanks to Tim there we've got like parallel stories here but the next three tracks I'm going to play have all got a connection to Keith and this uh, connection sort of hangs around that uh, first time that Keith and myself were appearing at Blackpool Mecca
telling you tonight the story of Mr Keith Minshall and going through some of the times and records that he's uh, certainly been involved in and, and some of the clubs he was involved in. That was a particular period because you know, Keith and myself were doing um, Tiffany's in Newcastle on Sunday night and uh, then this guy came down and uh, I'd never seen him before. He's got his uh, posh suit on and his braided blazer and he said to me, he said, I'm the new assistant manager. So very nice. Guy was named Tom West. So, of course, out came the salmon jokes. Uh, which is, of course, he'd, ne- <laughs> he'd, he'd never heard them before. He said, yeah, honestly. Um, anyway, we kept them going. He was there about seven or eight weeks, and uh, Sunday nights at that time was, was rammed. I mean, sometimes people would go down to uh, Chantham Gardens, have a game of football, and we'd open the doors at six o'clock, but by eight o'clock, the place was absolutely rammed. And, um, I, you know, I said to Tom, uh, over those weeks, you know, you've been at Blackpool Mecca. Uh, he said, yeah, we used to have a soul night there, you know, Tony Jeb and blah, blah, blah. Blah and uh, Les Cacal. Uh, he said, but it closed down because um, it was closed down by the torch, really, by the all-nighters at the torch, which, you know, obviously drew the crowd. And uh, he said, but I'm going back there uh, next week. He said, I'll have a word with Bill Pye, see if we can reopen the, um, you know, the, the Blackpool Mecca again for, the, like, a phase two. And, of course, never thought we'd hear from him again, to be fair. He was a lovely bloke. He's passed away now. But um, many thanks, Tom, because you just absolutely changed history. Um, I came in from... I was working on wristwires and cables locally. A few people will know that. And um, I came home and mum said, uh, Tom West left you a message. And, and then she got on the salmon jokes. And I thought, bloody, <laughs> this is really catching. <laughs> Um, so anyway, <laughs> um, I rang Bill Pye and he said, uh, yeah, he said, when can you start? And I said, we can start on Saturday. And that's what we did. I had to go around to Keith's flat and uh, knock him up, wake him up on the Saturday. Even though we were going to Blackpool Mecca for the first one, he was still fast asleep on his bed. Goodness knows where. He'd probably been up all night doing something. And um, we trailed off up there. And so those records that I've just played you, I mean, the Charades, for instance, uh, was a record that was found in that time where... where there was Keith Mitchell and myself playing at Blackpool Mecca and Ian Levine, uh, ironically, playing at the top rank in Hanley. And uh, we'd pass each other on the motorway and, and one of the guys who was involved in that passing through was Bernie Golding, who's actually in chat tonight. Good evening, Mr Golding. And we'd, we'd catch each other on the services going the opposite way. He's coming from Blackpool to Stoke and we're <laughs> going from Stoke to Blackpool. And... Um, during that time, Keith and I, you know, searching for records, we, we found this place at the shop in Bradford Market. And we went up there this one day, and I'd already pulled out, I think it was the Chalfonts. Um, he loves me, on Mercury, wasn't it? And um, he said, I've got some records in a warehouse. He said, but I can't tell you where it is. You'll have to get in the van and put the, put this scarf on your head so you can't <laughs> see where we go. <laughs> I thought we were being kidnapped by the IRA or something. I mean, it was just insane. Anyway, he dropped us off in this, um, in this warehouse. So I'd never seen uh, anything like it. I mean, it was just stacked full of, of cardboard boxes, 100-count cardboard boxes, and uh, the records were mainly on Verve or MGM. So you can imagine Dotty Cambridge, you know, I mean, the Rat Race, uh, Living a Lie, the High Keys, all these records were in this place all at this one time. We knew we didn't have enough money, so we had to we had to balance it out and hide some records at the back for next time we came. But on this particular trip, we came back to the Shirards and we, you know, Keith wanted to go straight away to the top rank and uh, and, and sell it to Ian Levine, which is what he did. And uh, the Shirards, one of, at the time, one of Mr Levine's favourite records, Keith, to my happiness. Ty Kareem, very much part of that Keith Minshall and Colin Curtis first reappearance at the Mecca. Uh, just an unbelievably classic 
fantastic record. Donald Lee Richardson, um, that was Keith and myself. We'd gone up to Blackpool Mecca uh, on a coach at that time, possibly even John Murphy's coach. And um, one of the first records that really hit us that was played by Tony Joe was Donald Lee Richardson, You Got Me in the Palm of Your Hand, which was just insane to us. We had to get a copy of that, which we did eventually. It took us a while to get two copies, but we did manage to get one fairly quickly. And then uh, finishing up with Larry Aitken, which is from that same era where... We'd, we'd done the torch, we'd done the torch for kind of 13 months where, where it's much more aggressive soul, it's much more all-nighter soul, whereas these records were classier, more mid-tempo, and they kind of fitted the bill at Blackpool Maker because you've got, you got that low roof. And um, I can't remember, Tim, did you ever go to Blackpool Maker? Only the... There was some, a couple of all-dayers, weren't there? The, the, with, well, there, uh, well, there was more than a couple, just, but yeah. Like both... But later on, with I'm thinking Brass Construction. Yeah, we had Brass Construction yeah. Players Association. Yeah, yeah. yeah we had with some fantastic Al Hudson. Uh, but the the first all day at Blackpool Mecca was of course J.J. Barnes. Right. You know that's that's going way back. And, and you kind of watch that transition uh, go from uh, Northern Soul in the old days, you know, being the priority to Northern Soul going back up into the Highland Room. And the main room was, as you say, Brass Construction Players Association, Sylvester. Um, you know, well, Roy Ayers, <laughs> you know, just an incredible kind of changeover and also pr- probably one of the best old days of the Crown Heights Affair. But Northern Soul still played a role. It was, it was still played upstairs and, uh, you know, DJs again, um, very much supporting that side of it. So that's Keith Minshall's influence in that particular period. Uh, but we're talking about collecting records. I mean, you, I mean, we've talked briefly about Buse, but locally in Stoke-on-Trent, you've got Buse, you've got Sherwins in Hanley which is where Keith found his copy of uh, Queen of Fools. Mm, yeah. In Sherwin's in Hanley on a Saturday, if you went in, you could, they allowed you behind the counter for a few minutes to pull maybe half a dozen records out. And then one of the girls would play the records. You had to go and sit in a booth and, and listen to these records coming out from the booth. We really didn't want to do this. We kind of knew what the records were. But yeah. We had to play along with it. And uh, eventually we, we worked out a new system with the assistant there, whereas actually if you gave the assistant some money, you didn't have to sit in the booth <laughs> and you could just have the records. And that was smashing. Uh, Rediffusion in Hamley, which was a TV shop, but they sold, they stocked um, you know, a lot of British label stuff. I mean, one one that we got from there, I remember, was the Spellbinders. And uh, I Need Your Love So Desperately was from there as well. Um, Blaney's in Newcastle under Lime. Kath Jones is fantastic shop in Sandbach. I was, man- you- I was going to mention Kath Jones because later on it was one of the places... Keith and I used to go on some midweek kind of mini road trips where he'd have ideas about where we could buy records. And Kath Jones is one of those places that we'd go to to see if we could find British label releases that were about to go big or were being played at Wigan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, she got fantastic uh, back catalogue of British in there. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of school kids went in there and started pinching stuff, so she, she, used to, she used to lock you in there as well. It became a thing about records. Well, that record shop, though, had been open since about, was it 1947 or something? Should have been a listed building because it yeah. was a fantastic wooden affair. It looked, looked like something from the States. Yeah. Uh, you know, stuck there and, 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 and eventually knocked down, sadly, but that was a fantastic record shop. Uh, Graham Davis and Dave Rose Record Shop, that was uh, that 
had followed on from Views, uh, that was in Burslem. Of course, Kit's own shop, which is in Kids Grove, in the market there. What was that market called? CBs or something like that. <laughs> um, and I think Tesco were in there at one time as well. And then Replay Records in Tunstall. Mike Lloyd and Terry Budder was in Newcastle, and uh, you've mentioned Tunstall. I used to work there occasionally as well. But then we went further afield and we found Global Records in, uh, in Manchester. You went there. Yeah, it became Yanks. It did become yeah. Yanks in later years. Spinning Records on Cross Street. Uh, Yanks, as you mentioned, Robinson's Records, Piccadilly Records. I mean, uh, that was another place where uh, Keith and I used to find a hell of a lot of British stuff. Uh, One Stop, which was my Piccadilly station. Ralph's Records by Victoria Station in Manchester, where we, th- that infamous day where Keith and I went in and uh, we asked uh, Zach, Zan, I think his name was, it was Zach, uh, he wasn't a very pleasant guy and he certainly didn't like us. And um, we said, have you got Chuck Jackson? Good things come to those who wait. And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, and and the girl behind him was kind of shaking her head and we thought, well, that doesn't seem right. Anyway, we waited till this guy's gone for his lunch. And then the girl said, we've got some copies of that Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so Keith did the usual, give her a couple of quid and, and we went out of there with three copies. And on the way home, it was it was a thirteen stop train from Manchester, and they pressed which and Macclesfield everywhere it stopped, and uh, Keith had got the discotron. So I think everybody on that train knew the words <laughs> to Chuck Jackson. Good things come to those who wait. By the time we got home, what record shops? Birmingham as well. I mean, Steve Glover, who I've spoken to today, um, his his memory of Keith was was fantastic. His one abiding memory of Keith is when uh, after the torch all nighter. Um, uh, Keith took him back to the flat to look through some records and he was with uh, his now wife, uh, Jan and uh, Keith let Steve in and then slammed the door on Jan thank you very much indeed <laughs> uh, again, he was very good at being selective and only talking to the people he felt he needed to yeah. <laughs> in that particular uh, position but uh, Graham Ward of course in, in Birmingham as well and Alan S who owned uh, the original shop that Steve Glover was in in the Oasis in Birmingham Reddington's uh, records I've already mentioned uh, Bob Morris uh, one of Bob's early finds from Reddington's of course was Bobby Williams I've only got myself to blame which we learnt uh, you know through Bob and learnt about the shop through Bob I used to play a bit of snooker with Bob as well and as I say hope uh, you uh, well on the road to recovery so. and then um, you know Discovery as well I mean so many fantastic record shops and just as the things were evolving in the clubs itself things were also evolving with the record shops and how far people went eventually, of course, to the United States of America.
Mr. Keith Mitchell, tell us about those records. Yeah, just because we were on the topic really of, uh, you know, Kath Jones and other, other sorts of record shops. And I fast forwarded really a bit to an, another part of my story, which was that when I was driving Keith to a lot of venues, in the, that would be at the weekend, but midweek, he'd call me and he'd say, uh, why don't we go to, uh, you know, blah, 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 he's got records. Why don't we go see such just a person, you know? So we'd be at you know, Blue Maxes, you know, Max Millwoods, or we'd, you know, go and visit uh, Neil Rush and Kath Jones and all these. One of the places we'd regularly go to is, um, which you mentioned, Global, which later became Yanks. Yes. And that guy, Ed Balbier. Ed, Ed Balbier, yeah. Strange guy, and I, I, was, I, was, <coughs> I wasn't completely convinced that he wasn't racist, because he was always a bit strange with me. Okay. But, but anyway, we, we always used to, to get in there, and... You know what it was like. There was records I think, everywhere. I think, I, I think I'm, I'm not going to defend him on on that point. I mean, you know more about that than me. But I, w- I would certainly say he, he could be very awkward. It depended on his yeah. mood on the day he, as to how far through the warehouse you could actually. Live. Yeah, <laughs> he was definitely moody. That that's for sure. But we invariably we'd get in there, and you know it was like in there. There was albums. There was forty fives and, and everything, and we'd always end up buying handfuls of that record you played. Just the Lovettes. I need a guy on Carnival. Okay. Just because we both liked it, and it was it was cheap, I think they were about 50 pence each, and we'd always buy a handful without knowing really what we were ever going to do with it. And actually, at the time then, it was too slow. The tastes were for faster records than that. But we personally liked it, so we'd always buy them, which is why I played it. You know, it was just a memory of Keith and I going there regularly. Yeah. The one that you played after, George Pep, the story behind that is that one of the places that Keith suggested we go to one time was uh, to see Neil Rushton. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Neil Rushton could come on and, you know, do a show with you, you know. Or, well, if, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he will. I did, actually, I did actually try to contact him today, but I couldn't get him to answer the phone. He's probably deep in, in something else. But but, uh, but we went to visit Neil, and um, he got quite a lot of records, because he'd obviously gone on trips of his own to the US. Yes, he did. And I remember buying, sadly, Sandy Hadley and Louise Lewis, you know, Who We Let, Let It Be Me, boy, and... and quite a lot of other things, and they're all cheap, you know, pound, two pounds, whatever. And he had this record by George Pep, The Feeling Is Real, which I didn't know, Keith didn't know. We played it, and we thought, well, that's okay. And we said to Neil, how much is it? He said, you know, like the rest, you know, quid, two quid. So we bought it. And the rest's history, because I then passed it on to, I think, Gary Rushbrook, who was starting to DJ at Wigan then, and uh, he played it and made it a big record. And that's that's how that record began. That was its origins, really. Yeah, after my time, that one. But I mean, listening to it again tonight, absolutely superb record. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, you you were driving Keith. I mean, where were you driving him to? I mean, yeah, well, he was driving you up the wall. He was driving me crazy, and I, and I was driving driving him round in his Ford Cortina automatic. Driving Mister Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, what <laughs> happened was um, I was a Wigan regular. I mean, I, I, I probably in the end 
went over 200 times. I mean, I was there pretty much every weekend as far as possible. Yeah. Keith knew that, you know, Keith was there every weekend because he was a resident DJ. And Keith had had various people driving him uh, to those venues, you know, um, Butchie's older brother, Aunt Dobson, had been a driver for him. Um, uh, Campo had been a driver for him. And eventually, I think Keith and I almost had a conversation because I was getting to Wigan every which way, hitching, you know, bus, train, you name it. You were going no matter what. <laughs> you know, no matter what, you know. And, and Keith one day must have said, well, you know, why don't you drive me in my, drivers in my, you know, Cortina Automatic. So I guess I started driving for him around about 1980 to, to about, well, to, to when Wigan closed in September 81. So... We, we were together a lot. I mean, we were there every weekend. Midweek, we'd be going to these other places, as I say, looking for records. On top of that, we'd be going to, you know, soul nights, all days, etc., etc. We were together all the time, you know, on road trips. And that's really where my friendship with Keith and getting to know him really began, I suppose. Getting to know the real guy, really. Yeah. More Keith music coming your way.
Hit Mix Radio 107.5 and you're listening to a combination of Mr Tim Ashibandi and myself, Colin Curtis, talking about the legend that is Keith Mitchell. Uh, four records there and we kicked off with, I mean, this is kind of the Torch period. I mean, I, I remember uh, in the early days of the Torch, I mean, Torch would be Wednesday night, be Friday night and um, Keith used to like a, a drink in those days, so he'd be up in, on the balcony having a drink and then at some point in the night, uh, Chris Burton would come and find me and he said, you need to take him home now, Colin. I've got one on the floor and one he's threatening. <laughs> I said, okay. So then I'd, I'd go up on the balcony and say, I'd li- he'd look at me straight at me and he'd say, is it time to go home, kid? And I'd say, yes, it's time to go home, Keith. We need to go now. Whether that was a bus, the taxi or the car or whatever it was, we had to, we had to then take him out of it. Once he got to a certain point with that, with that alcohol, then the red light came on and it didn't really matter what you said to him because he wasn't understanding it. So I'll just punch you instead. And that was a fantastic <laughs> way of solving any issues. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I remember getting up there on the, on the Major Lance night as well. And um, Major Lance is in the, in the dressing room. And he's going to go on live. And uh, Chris Burton came to him and said, he doesn't want to go on. I said, what? He says he doesn't want to go on. He's in the dressing room. Go and see what he can do. Uh, I went in there and he said, he didn't know the words to You Don't Want Me No More. He doesn't want to sing it. I said, well, it doesn't matter if you know the words. Everybody in the club knows the words. So if you go on and you just just hoof it, and then on the chorus, everybody will join in. I said, so it's not going to be a problem. You know the chorus, so, you know, whichever way around, it's going to be fine. And um, and Keith popped his head on the door. He says, is, is, is he nearly ready? I said, <laughs> he knows the words to Oh Mum Mum, but he's struggling, <laughs> struggling on the others. Um, I said, go and get me a drink. Uh, you know, just to calm him down. And uh, Keith came back. He, he went to the, behind the bar to the optics and he didn't get a glass uh, and, and get a drink. He, he ripped the the whiskey bottle off the optic and it. <laughs> by, by the time Major went on, I think about a third of that had disappeared down his throat. By which time, it didn't matter what, he didn't know the words to, he didn't care, and put in one of the best nights ever at the Golden Torch. I mean, but, um, you know, Keith just always played that part and absolutely fantastic. I mean, the Drifter story, which I told at his funeral, which, which is an absolute classic, you know, when he tells them a few minutes before that, no, no, he didn't ask them if they'd do it. Um... But we kicked off there with Al Kent and the way you've been acting lately, and I put that one down to Keith because everybody in those days—I mean, pre pre all nighter and through the all nighters—that's probably one of the most prolific times ever for instrumentals. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we started flipping. So you get instead of Excess Trek, you were getting it's all the same to you, baby. And that was one of the early ones that he flipped uh, the way you've been acting lately, Al Kent. And then a Torch record that never really took off as big as it should, but an incredible record on original sound, Lorenzo Manley and. Uh, down on you, another record that both Keith and myself championed a lot at that particular time, um, and the excitement's blowing up my mind, which will always stick in my mind, I knew if that record was playing anywhere in the torch that I would look up at the stage, I knew who would be behind the decks, and the, be the one and only Mr Keith Mitchell and then, one of his all time favourite records, and I remember I was sitting in the snug in the pub, avoiding my father, who used to make me uh, help out with changing all the barrels and all that nonsense downstairs <laughs> in the cellar, which I wasn't really wasn't. <laughs> I mean, drinking the stuff or emptying the jukebox, I was pretty good at, but not actually, you know, doing the job, cleaning the pipes and all that business. And uh, there was a, a knock on the snug door, and I'm thinking it's my dad, but it, and, and I didn't answer it. And then at the window, which led out onto the street, 
there was this Atlantic copy of Art Freeman <laughs> waving about in midair. <laughs> and I, I realised, I, I, I don't think I've ever moved so fast to get... He says, I've found you a copy, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was um, Art Freeman slipping around and uh, the legacy of Mr Keith Mitchell. So... Earlier on, you played a record uh, by the Astors. Tell us a story on that. Yeah, it's a very quick story, Colin. Uh, as you know, Keith loved that record. I loved that record. And uh, apparently, he, he named uh, his daughter after that record, which is called Candy. And uh, so for me, whenever I play that record, I always think you know, of Keith and, and his daughter and, and the reasons that he, he called her that name. So Fantastic yeah. record. And yeah. Fantastic <laughs> Music chosen by Tim.
There we go again. Howard Guyton and I watch you slowly slip away. Tell us a little bit of a story about that one and then backtrack on what we've just played. Kind of Wigan era? Yes, so at this point, you know, I'm driving Keith to Wigan every week. Actually, sometimes, once a month, it would be twice over the weekend because once a month, Wigan had a Friday oldies, so there'd be the Friday oldies night and the following night, Keith and I would go again for the regular Saturday. So we were there all the time. It actually, it's probably worth saying a little bit about those times because it was a complicated arrangement because Keith's brother Mick would pick, uh, pick myself and my girlfriend Sharon up from Hanley in the flat we were living in, Lisfield Street. And then he'd drive us at top speed to the mum and dad's in Kidsgrove. There we'd load up Keith's records. Then Sharon would drive Keith and I to Wigan We'd always get there about an hour before it started, so we'd invariably be there for about 11 o'clock. We'd then stay for the whole night till 8 in the morning. Then Shannon would drive us back, drop Keith and his records off in Kidsgrove, then drive us to the flat in Hanley, at which point I would then drive back to Kidsgrove, having dropped Sharon off, drop the car off at Keith's, and then I'd get the bus back from Kidsgrove to Hanley in the morning. So I'd end up getting back home about 10 in the morning or even later sometimes. But anyway, that was, that was pretty much repeated every weekend uh, for about a year, 18 months, uh, certainly in terms of Wigan. Um, Keith was a resident DJ there, so hence we were there every week, you know, for, from Keith's point of view. And the records are just played with things that Keith absolutely hammered there. So they stick in my head. You know, Howard Guyton, uh, I watch you slowly slip away um, on Verve. Then before that, the uh, Gene Latter funny face girl was another one he played a lot. Yeah. Um, Johnny Paul, I want to know. And, of course, Lonely Lover, Jimmy McFarland, which, you know, turns out to be a Motown record recorded by Marvin Gaye that was never properly at the time, yeah, anyway, right. released right. by Marvin Gaye. And when you, when you listen to Jimmy McFarland's version, yeah, you can sort of hear it's pretty Motownish. But those records, along with a whole host of others like Professionals, That's Why I Love You, uh, were absolutely hammered by Keith. Uh, and in talking to you before off-air, obviously you were saying that Keith had tried some of those, or you tried some of those at the Torch, and they yeah, haven't yeah. worked. That's right. Howard Guyton was, was was tough at the Torch and tough at the early doors at the Mecca, yeah, when we first went there, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean it, it kind of falls into categories of records like, um, you know, Clara Ward, this, you know, Right Direction, uh, This Way is a Good Way, you know, I mean, it, 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 it was some records which we knew were class, but they were still tough to break to, to you know, particularly a bigger dance floor. Um, where, where they wanted, you know, a faster tune. Yeah. I think this particular era at Wigan uh, was an era when there was a lot of quite poppy Northern played, and a lot of it was on British labels. And I, I think Keith actually liked British. I think he liked collecting British. So he was quite happy to play, you know, British release-only things like the Johnny Paul and the Gene Latter. Very much so. I think Mick Smith will tell you. <laughs> you know, right, right, right to the very end. He 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 loved collecting British. He loved, he loved the British soul thing because you know, like take the story back to sixty seven, sixty eight. I mean, that was the only way to access some of these records. So I mean, I think that sticks with you. That that connection yeah. that uh, your people were out there putting these fantastic records out in the UK. And um, I'm going to shout a few people in the chat room. I mean, who've been uh, uh, Graham? You're absolutely right. I mean, Kath Jones was an absolute lovely lady but I mean she'd told Keith and myself that uh, she was having problems sometimes with school children and uh, you know she would lock the door I don't think she was locking was in, in particular but she would definitely lock the door but uh, a big shout to uh, 
Vander Olinsky to Suzanne Pacenti, uh, Bernie Golding, of course, big old mate from Preston, um, and Mecca uh, regular each and every week. Elizabeth Pace, um, we've got uh, <laughs> all, all sorts dodging about. Mark Moyes from down there. I've got somebody here from Nova Scotia. Um, we've got Gregory Pecker Dalton, who's got a, a story to <laughs> remind uh, Tim about. Steve Amison, Craig Leach, um, Mick Rathbone, of course, who runs a very excellent uh, pop bank uh, sessions down there in Stoke um, Kev Oxbury who's a you know, very good friend of mine and uh, yeah, wasn't old enough to have been in any of these places but does appreciate good music and uh, good enough reason to listen indeed and uh, you know, we go through Mr David Waite thank you for your comments as well uh, Vanda already mentioned and you know if you want to get on the chat room you can do um, and one or two people asking is this show being recorded uh, to play again yes it is but I'm going to go back to Tiffany's I'm going to go back to that sort of 68 period to um, about 1970. I'm going to pay some respect to a DJ who was locked in there, still locked in there, doing nights locally as well, and uh, that's Mr John Murphy. So three records for John Murphy from that particular period. Now the name of this song that we're about to do is entitled I Got What It Takes, Part 1 and Part 2. And three, if we have time. Now, one, two, one, two, three, four.
Glenn Murray was on that Tiffany's period and uh, big shout as I say to the one and only Mr John Murphy don't forget he's at Moorville Hall Soul Nights as well he also works with us at the uh, at the Tiffany's Revival I mean fantastic DJ still doing it again after all these years we've still got words to come from uh, Richard Serling uh, you're talking about Keith I've still got words to come from uh, Jeffrey Leach uh, one of his He's in fact his final driver. I was just going to say there was there was uh, Baz Ratcliffe and Jeff uh, after after me, me and Sharon. Yeah, yeah there's a few people in chat. I mentioned <laughs> a few people have driven for us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we kicked off those you know with Brooks and Jerry. I'm, I mean, ultimate classic, 1967 originally, and uh, one that both Keith and myself bought as a brand new release from Steel Brothers Records on uh, on that very street. And then surprise party for Baby, vibrating vibrations, Neptune Records, Neptune Records, of course, uh, with the I Dig You Like the OJs, all, all that kind of thing with John Murphy Champion back down there. And also keep saying you don't love nobody. You know, Keith and myself found a copy of that copies of the millionaires number for me and uh, do the boomerang Otis LaBille and uh, Bobby Hebb love 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 and you brought back changing me and they were all in Woolworths in Newcastle <laughs> Funny, in the, yeah. In the pick and mix. <laughs> uh, albums as well by the Elgins, the Monitors. I mean, I mean, you just, you, you couldn't believe it. No. You just could not believe it. But it did tend to be, obviously, they, you know, Bradford seemed to find or, or seemed to ship over uh, a big chunk of MGM and Verve. But Woolworths, they ship in kind of Phillips and all the Motown labels. There was gaudy stuff in there, VIP. And so that was all in... in and I think that was Woolworths around the country. I think you know, I heard this story many times up and down. Um, any more drivers you can remember? Um, the ones I mentioned who preceded me, as I say, Butch's brother, older brother, Aunt, Aunt Dobson, uh, Campo, uh, used to drive Keith to Wigan in his Mini. Um, I'm sure there were others. <laughs> they are the ones I know of. We're going back to uh, some of Keith's records and uh, kicking off with this one and one of my favourite Van McCoy tunes. <laughs>
about those. Lady yeah, in green. Lady in Green. I think uh, this was probably one of the rarest, if not the rarest record that Keith ever owned. Uh, I'm not sure who he bought it off. I can't quite remember, but I remember he paid £150, which seemed a lot of money at the time. Um, <laughs> not nearly as much as it, it, it goes for there. now, which <laughs> is right. about 7K, I yeah. believe. But yeah. Um, yeah, Keith had it, played it at Wigan, and uh, yeah, the, I mean, the crowd loved him for it. It was a very popular record. It was also... Uh, slower, a slower pace. It signalled a slower pace uh, that of record that was starting to be played at Wigan because everything had been super fast prior to that era. I think it picked it picked up um, Kiss Vision as well and, and and his ability to do that with records because if you go all the way back, I mean, like myself, influenced by you know the music that was played at Twisted Wheel and then wanted to share that locally, uh, but then he, he was involved in the Torch, he was involved in Blackpool Mecca, he was involved in uh, Wigan Casino. Uh, he was involved in Stafford. He was involved. Was it Yate? Yate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. he, 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 but he wasn't. He wasn't a bit part player in any of these clubs. He, he was a huge influence, not just to people on the dance floor, but also to other DJs. I think when I when I sort of was trying to think it through, I think Keith probably must have played at every significant northern venue right back to when he first started. He must have done. Hundred percent agree. Because I mean, if we, you name we, all the all the all the major clubs and venues, he's DJed at them all. We start. We started at um, Clough Old Youth Club, um, as I say, on the Johnny One deck, and then um, we we upgraded that to Talk Pits Village Hall. We thought we'd arrive there, you know, <laughs> you know Talk Pits Village Hall. And um, I was at grammar school. Would have been expelled from school if I'd have been called DJ at that point. So uh, my name on that particularly was called the Baron. Somebody has actually did show me a flyer. <laughs> if you hit the Baron, give, give, give me a break. Um, just to throw the police off the scent. Um, but then you know, Kids Grove Town Hall. I, I mean, I can remember his glee when eventually Chris Burton agreed to, to let him become one of the DJs at the Torch on, on a Friday night. Friday night had become, you know, the most exceptional night. This is pre-all-nighters. That was the one where we started to see people travel from from, from Manchester, uh, from Derby, from Burton-on-Trent. It was the beginning of, of you know, the, the build-up to the all-nighters. We knew that, um, you know, the wheel was in trouble. The police were looking to close the twisted wheel. And uh, eventually convinced, um, you know, to Chris to, to put him for an all-nighter licence. And, of course, in the interim, of course, the wheel closed. Uh, and then Chris eventually, I got a phone call from Chris saying that, you know, they managed to get a licence. And uh, for the first two all-nighters, just Keith and myself played, we got a 10 quid each with an absolute bonus, yeah. Records records are five pounds each, and we thought that means we could have two. <laughs> um, so, but... That was for a couple of weeks, and then we had a conversation, <clears throat> you know, from the people who were coming there, who had spoken to Chris to, to look at other DJs. There was Alan Day, of course, from the 72 Club, I think, in Burton-on-Trent, and uh, Martin Ellis, who was phenomenal on the microphone and uh, fantastic character. So, I mean, th they were the four DJs who took care of most of the all-nighters until Keith and I were advised to leave the torch um, by the management at Tiffany's uh, who were suggesting that, you know, if that hit the papers and our names hit the papers, uh, you know, they would be forced to let us go from the Mecca organisation uh, because obviously the police were pushing to, to close the torch. And that's what we did. And then, you know, some other DJs came in and played, notably, of course, Tony Jeb and, and Ian Levine at the end there. But um, I think 
uh, you know what what we're saying about this guy is his influence was there whether it you know new musical or or older music if if he wanted to champion a record he seemed to have the skills to be able to do that no matter which way around the next four records are for Keith from me I've got as I say I've got some records to play from uh, suggested by Keb Dodge some stories from Stafford uh, we've got more stories of course from Tim I've got Richard Serling stories and uh, a little bit more but these next four from me to Keith Mitchell and these are kind of the epitome and you'll see where this is going
do, 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 live radio, we're doing it. Um, well, that was inevitable, wasn't it? It was going to come at some point, and uh, uh, many points for that. And I'm, I'm just reading out what Richard sent to me, and uh, he mentions Roy Hamilton cracking up over you and the professionals, which Tim's already mentioned. Uh, that's why I love you. He always associates those with Keith and uh, the Fuller Brothers' times are wasting. But I know, and you know, Keith was similar sense of humour to himself, uh, you know, a bit nuts. And uh, he, he would have absolutely wanted to play the others as well. Because I remember, you know, after he played the Polar Brothers and, and made a massive record. And don't forget, that was probably the first 40 quid record that was sold on the Northern Soul scene. Um, it was brought up from London by, uh, I think, Dave Burton and uh, Dave Rivers and Mick Smith. And then by the time it left one of their boxes and got over to the other side of the stage, it had gone up from 20 quid to 40 quid. Which Keith didn't have 40 quid, but he got good credit. So, uh, yes... <laughs> There you go. And then it was amazing. I mean, I mean, I was just saying to Tim that some of the collectors at the time must have thought, well, I know this backing track. You know, maybe I've got something. Maybe I've got this record. They go home and find the Promatics or the Whispers, and then they started to ease out onto the scene as well. So we eventually ended up with that. And, of course, we've got, as you said earlier on, Chess, we've got um, Love and Brotherhood with the yeah. Sugar Pie Honey as well. All good. All good versions. And all very much Keith Mitchell, very much uh, the Golden Torch era, which is what we're talking about tonight. So uh, what we got next, Mr Tim? Yeah, so we played um, Sweet and Easy Van McCoy Strings, which is one of the few instrumentals that I associate with Keith. I think the other one would be Rat Race, so I don't know if I'm right in thinking that Keith played that, or did you all play that? No, no, Keith, I mean, Keith hammered Rat Race, and they also hammered Bok to Back, of course. So, yes. I mean, that that was, you know, it really is um, his, his go-to record at the Torch. I, I mean, Sliced Tomatoes, uh, Innocent Bystanders, uh, there's so many, Excess Trek, I mean, there's so many instrumentals at that particular time. Um, and yeah, he loved his instrumentals, absolutely loved them. I think for me, there's a just a personal memory with, with the Sweet and Easy, because I say it's associated with Keith, but it was also in a box of 60 records that was basically the start of, I suppose, my Northern Soul collection. I had a good friend called Robert Pass, uh, who was at, I was at school with, who uh, wanted to buy a Lambretta scooter, and he hadn't got the money, so he said to me, I'll sell you my collection for 12 quid, uh, so I can buy the, you know, contribute to, to towards the scooter. How many records for 12 quid? So there was 60, a box wow. of 60, one of those typical vinyl-covered small boxes. And it's funny because in there were a lot of the things that you're playing, you know, the, there was a Fuller Brothers in there, Surprise Party for Baby, Famicoy Strings, and that was, that was my collection. That's how it started, with that box of 60, really. But as I say, it's one of the instrumentals that I associate with Keith. Now, the other one that you played, the My World is on Fire, I chose that because it reminds me of a Keith story which was both sad and funny at the same time. Um, it was at a period when Keith was going through a bad time over him and his wife splitting up, and he was getting quite upset about it from time to time. And it wasn't helped by the fact he was, he was drinking too much to drown his sorrows. Anyway, on one of these occasions... We'd driven to an all-day run by Ruswin Stanley at Wigan Pier. And by the time it came for Keith to DJ, he was very much the worse for wear, having drunk quite a bit. But he went on anyway. And his first record was the ad-libs, Nothing Worse Than Being Alone. And it struck me as a strange record to start a spot with. I mean, it's a great record, but, you know, it just seemed a weird one to begin with. And then it clicked that for Keith, those words in the song... And in the title was what was significant for him. 
Yeah. Anyway, so far so good. But then he proceeded to play Jimmy Mack, My World Is On Fire. Same thing, I thought, yeah, it's the words. Then he played Walter Jackson, Where Have All The Flowers Gone? And I thought, yeah, okay. Followed again by Jimmy Mack and followed again by Walter Jackson. <laughs> by which time Russ had seen the light, seen enough, and after a couple more rounds of the same, basically removed Keith from the deck. So that was why I decided to play... Uh, I, will I, th- I, think, I think that that was definitely in his makeup. That was part of it, the way he communicated, the, the way he felt, because sometimes he, he, he didn't talk about things. No. And, and that was a way of communication. I mean, you know, right back to the early days, Walter Jackson became his go-to record when he when he was being affected by anything emotionally and, uh, and definitely. But also, what you've just said, multiple plays of a record would also do that. But also, for, for the positive thing, I mean, I remember when he first got Marlene Shaw, you know, the vocal to Wade in the Water, uh, and that was a Friday night at the Torch, and that had to go on three times in the first hour, you know, just... And, and what that did back in those days as well, it, it people left the club. There was no internet, there was no way of sometimes even finding out what records were. You'd, try no. and, you'd sing the words to somebody and they'd just look at you cluelessly and buy another drink. Um, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, it was it was just his way of, of, you know, getting that record out there so people would go away and say, well, you, you could not remember Wade in the Woods and there was now a vocal. <laughs> yeah. Even though that had been there all the time. I mean, these, these records were about discovery, about um, all about the timing of what, when and when they were found. Or when and when they were found, yeah. I should say. Yeah. So we're back to, um, I mean, looking at the first record, we're back to, for me, to Blackpool Mecca was Keith, but also uh, for you probably Wigan Casino. But here we go, it's Tim Ashibandi and myself Colin Curtis. We're here till midnight. That's another hour and 24 minutes. Four hours of show and definitely been recorded if you want to listen again. Here we go.
Tell us about those three. Yeah, it's a really good story, this, I think. it's Because it illustrates a side of Keith that I suppose very few people ever got to see, and that is his generosity. Um, basically, what happened was uh, we used to, the late Dave Alcock and I, 
He used to run coaches to Yate in Bristol, which was a night, uh, I'm not sure who ran it, it might have been Ian Clark, but we got to know about it basically from people we'd met, met and knew at Wigan, Mick Smith, Pete Whittison, Tony Warwick, Roger Stewart, A.D. Crowsdale, Budgie, Dave Ferguson, Dave Greet, and a whole host of others who'd become friends, you know, from when they used to come up from, from the south up to the casino. Yeah. And they used to tell us about this night at Yate that we really should go to and it was really good and the music was up front and all the rest of it. So Dave and I used to run coaches and they were really popular. I mean, we'd have like 60 people on, you know, a 52-seater coach and so on. <laughs> anyway, this one time <clears throat> we went to Yate and there was a guy there who I knew called Ian Stewart yep. who, who approached me and said that he was selling some records on behalf of Les McCutcheon, uh, whose trade name at the time was Colin B. That's right, that's right. And Les was selling Simon Susan's collection. And so Ian said to me, I've got these records, or I've got a sample of these records in the boot of my car. And I said, great, you know. And he said, would you be interested? I said, yeah, definitely. So he said, well, I've got a list. So he showed me the list, and I looked at the list, and I thought, this is a joke, because the prices were ridiculous. So, for example, at the time, Danny Mundy, which he just played there, was probably a hundred quid record. Yeah. Very rare, very sought after, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. It didn't cost me a hundred quid. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. Well, I, I, I never paid a hundred quid for a Nolan Silver record. Not back then. I mean, I've paid a few since. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, back then, no, 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 no. I think 30... 30, 40 would have topped it out, even yeah. though, you know, that 40 quid came for Keith at, at, um, at the torch. Um, I mean, by the mecca time. I mean, the upside of being Ian Levine or Colin Curtis or Richard Sillian is that if you've got a dealer who've got multiple copies, whether that be John Anderson at Soul Bowl, whether it be, you know, Brad Bradley from Colm, uh, whether it be Kev Fox, if they've got multiple copies, it's kind of in their interest to... Yeah, <laughs> for, for us to expose it, yeah, make it big and then uh, and do it that way. But mm. I, mean, I mean, certainly, um, you know, credit many, many, many dealers. I mean, one of my favourite dealers of all time was uh, Brian Forty Five Phillips. I mean, I mean, he, he, he you know, I mean, I, I, I wasn't the first to play Cool Off. I mean, Levine played it, but um, within a couple of weeks, he'd managed to track me a copy down. You know, I mean, th that was the kind of uh, backup that you got, which you know, get not, not an advantage. It was just. It, a privilege, really, to be able to you know, put the records together and have the opportunity to play them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Keith, uh, yeah, so that he showed me this list of records. I looked at the prices and I thought, this is crazy, you know, is it a practical joke? So Danny Mundy, that should have been 100 quid, was a fiver. <laughs> Lily Bryant, which should have been probably the same, was 12 quid. I think Little Joe Romans was a fiver. I mean, these were just ridiculous prices, you know, just joke prices. And I thought to myself, well, this can go one or two ways. Either I can go along with the joke and then the worst that can happen is I'll be laughed at, you know, or it might actually turn out to be, to be great, you know. So I said to him, okay, I'm interested. I said, how do we take this forward? He said, mark off on the list everything that you want. Yeah. Well, I just marked off everything, and I mean everything, and the only record I didn't mark off, I don't know why I didn't see it, was, was Stanley Mitchell, Get It Baby. Now, I'm thinking, Simon Susan, this is a guy who's known to be, like, probably the scene's biggest bootlegger, so all these are going to turn out to be Simon Susan bootlegs or lookalikes, you know. But I thought I'll go along with it anyway. 
So cut a long story short, he comes back in, Ian comes back in with the records, and I looked at him and they're all real. Wow. <laughs> so I'm thinking, yeah, I've absolutely got to buy these, except I had no money. So not, thought, not, not always a disadvantage. So I thought, what am I going to do? You're six so, foot 17. <laughs> so I looked at Keith, and I thought, it's worth a shot. So I went over to him and said, Keith, and you know what Keith's like, he'd, he'd picked up on the buzz around these records anyway, you know, people starting to, to sort of flock around it, and I thought, I've got to act quickly. So I said to Keith, look, Keith, you can see what's happening here, you know, these, these records are for sale, I've got the chance to buy them. Have you got any money you can lend me? And he said, yeah, how much do you need? And I said, probably 100 quid. And he gave me 100 quid without any questions, nothing. He just gave me the 100 quid to buy him. Now, you know what it's like, Colin, this is a ruthless scene, collecting-wise. It's dog-eat-dog, you know. And most people would have thought, I'm not lending you the 100 quid because I'm going to buy the same records you're That's trying right. to buy. As soon as you move away from the deal. Yeah, you know, and you can do one, basically. Keith didn't. He just, no questions asked. He, he gave me the money. And he said, you know, sort it out me later. And, and he, I did. I bought the records. They are the actual copies that you just played that I bought on that wow. night. And if that was all down and to Keith and, and his and generosity. Just, just remind us, what, what does Lily Bryant go for nowadays? Mm, Fifteen hundred to two grand, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I, I said to you earlier, although it never was one of the biggest records at the Torch, it was always an awkward price, six or seven quid, which is quite a lot of money for yeah. a record that wasn't an, you know, an established factor, but um, absolutely unbelievable record. But you mentioned uh, you mentioned one person, somebody in chat's mentioned another, so I'm going to pick up on that. Simon Susan. Um, yes, I go back a long way with Simon Susan. The first time I came across Simon Susan was in the Torch. And I think he'd been to the Catacombs before he came to the Nighter. Um, and it's the first time I'd ever seen a box that wasn't from Woolworths and made out of plastic and held <laughs> 50 records. Uh, although Keith did have his wooden box. I mean, most people would wander around the Torch with one of the, the plastic Woolworths boxes. Uh, but this guy, no, this was a bespoke box. I would say maybe 80 singles. And when you look through the box, it was like you had to keep pinching yourself and saying, no, no, this isn't, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Every single record you, you would be something that if you didn't want it yourself, somebody else would want it. Yeah. Uh, just an incredible moment. Um, and then, I think it was a week later or ten days later, Keith and myself went up to Leeds to visit Simon Susan. And he gave us an address, and we, we, we're kind of winging it. We didn't really know a lot about the guy at that point. This is early doors with uh, Susan. This is way before any talk of you know, bootlegs or pressings. Um, and we, we eventually found the address, which was kind of looked like a council flat. That's what it looked like. Uh, you know, uh, just a local uh, Leeds council flat. Uh, bottom floor, and he, he answered the door. And he was dressed a little bit like you'd expect Prince to be dressed in, you know, in Purple Rain. <laughs> a little bit like that. <laughs> Um, but the whole flat was white. It was white, like shag pile carpet. There was a mini white piano. Everything was white. There was a candelabra. Everything was, it was like Liberace's flat. And, and I thought, this can't be right, you know. And then he, he brought out these boxes of records and just, just an insane amount of records. I think Keith and I, you know, we obviously didn't have the money to buy anything like as, as much as we wanted to, but uh, we went to see him a few years later, a couple of years later in, in Leeds, and, in, and he was living in a student apartment, and uh, everything was just in a sideboard. It was a completely different Simon Susan. You know, things yeah. had changed. I mean, I did some incredible deals with Susan, and I, I remember spending 30 minutes on the phone with the guy, and um, he thought I was Russell and Stanley. 
And he was, he was, he was telling, he was telling me all these records that he got for me. And I thought that's marvelous. That's, that's just incredible. I mean, one, one, one of the the magical uh, swap moments for me at, at that point was that he, I, I got a copy of um, the international GTOs off him. And the only reason I got it off him was because I wanted to uh, use it as a swap because Sol Sam had got uh, Robbie Lawson burning cessation uh-huh. and I wanted that record badly. I didn't actually think Martin would go through with it, but he did. It, he was quite happy with it and there was no uh, no trickery. So I got a record that became the biggest record by Paul Mecca at that time. And uh, Simon Susan, what a character. I mean, he came to uh, Clayton Lodge. People will remember that's closed down nowadays, but hotel just off turn off 15 there. And um, I went in there. And he said, yes, uh, Colin, what have you got to, to swap? I said, nothing, nothing. I just want to buy some records. No, no, I've got plenty of money. And he emptied about 20 grand onto the bed out of, <laughs> out of a rucksack. I mean, it, he really was a huge character. I mean, you know, unfortunately tarnished by a lot of the bad things he did. But, I mean, definitely done his homework on the Northern scene, definitely done his homework on, on the records and the selection of records he got was just unbelievable. I'm going to mention someone else as well. I'm going to mention Phil Oliver, the late Phil Oliver. Uh, somebody's just mentioned the Antelope and Hanley. You know, tell us a little bit about the Antelope. You know more about that than me. <laughs> yeah. There, you, there, you look a bit like an Antelope. There was, there was a, a time in my life when when myself and Sharon were, were, were in there every single night because we only lived up the, up the road. Uh, in Litchfield Street, and it was it was our regular. I mean, we yeah, we were in there every night, and it was it was a pub full of characters, and you know, one of the biggest characters in there was Phil Oliver. I mean, well, you know, somebody's also mentioned what was the record shop member. It was Lotus Records, wasn't it? Lotus, which was opposite. And I used to go up there on a Saturday yeah. morning and listen. And uh, I right. remember my friend Gary, who used to travel with me to the Mecca. He'd ring me and say, oh, the, the, the records have just been delivered to the shop. So I'd race up to, to Hanley. Phil was a fantastic guy. Just a but, great but, guy, a good what, friend. What, what, what I saw as an observer at, 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 um, at, at the Antelope Pub was he was able, he mixed up Blackpool Mecca with Wigan Casino. And, and, and you know, he, he, he would play records from both. He, he, yeah, he, he got that knack. He, he mixed up a bit of everything, including. Bouts of Mule Train, which had us all in stitches with, <laughs> with I, I, the beer tray. I, I think that's essential. <laughs> but he, um, I think what, what I always think about uh, Phil was he, he made, certainly made me love records, which I was desperately trying to hate because there was that whole Wigan and Mecca thing and I was very firmly in the Wigan camp and I didn't want to be liking some of the things that were being played in the Mecca. <laughs> and Phil was trying to get us to like things like, you know, DC LaRue, Cathedral, yeah, yeah. and Shalimar, <laughs> take that to the bank and, and so on and so forth. Some of them to this day I can't stand still. I can't stand DC LaRue. But others like Shalimar, I love them and they're part of my own yeah. soundtrack, you know, yeah. to, to my life. And the, the, the thing is there, that know, they went on to become commercially successful yeah. as well, but at that time, we're playing these as new records, yeah. I mean, and they were having a huge response. Blackpool Mecca was probably part, and, and also Manchester Ritz, very much a part of the evolution and the change, um, yeah. you know, that moved it in, into that Idris Mohammed can have a number be like this. Uh, DC LaRue, yeah. you mentioned. Then we went to Ashford and Simpson, Lonnie Liston Smith. And the whole thing moved and became a different thing. And I remember having a conversation with Keith about 8081. And, he, you know, it, although he was never going to leave the Northern Soul scene, he, he kind of admitted that, you know, it was getting tough at that time. Yeah. But 
the incredible thing about Seven Inch Singles and the incredible thing about the passion over the years that, that, that people have shown towards Northern Soul is that this came back like a phoenix. And now, probably the most collectible format of music in the world. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing about the Antelope was, it was the centre for us, for, for a lot of us Stoke Soulies. I mean, that's where we congregated. That was our home, you know, base, our home base from camp. home. Base and, camp. you know, many a Friday and Saturday night, we'd be in there till it was pretty much over and Phil had done his thing. And then we'd be like, okay, are we going to Wigan? And we'd make it to, somehow make it to Keel Services. And that would be the start of a whole new, you know, Night adventure, but the antelope was the centre for us of, of everything yeah. back then. Yeah. It really was. Brilliant. Um, we're moving on with Keith, and we're going to move on this time to the Stafford era. I'm going to play some from Stafford. Uh, these are things that have been uh, mentioned, apart from one out of the four, actually, uh, uh, was mentioned to me. I've got some stories uh, from Mr. Kev Dodge after this, uh, but here we go. It's 22.57. You were Colin Curtis and Tim Ashibanda. We're here on Hitmix Radio 107.5. Big shout to Robbie Benson for letting us do this on a Friday. Four hours of music, so we've got one hour, two minutes, and 30 odd seconds still to go. Stick around. Fire, I don't let my heart get filled. 
we're talking about Keith Mitchell and we're talking about the Stafford era at the moment. And those are records that uh, Kev Dodge uh, sent me a message and said that uh, Keith used to pick records up, but he had the knack of picking records up. We always had a knack of picking records up, but um, from Richard Serling and people like that, uh, that hadn't lost that sort of excitement and were still, uh, you know, interesting to the new crowd. And, and it was kind of... Am I right, Tim, in, in describing uh, Stafford as... Uh, the kind of place where people wanted to go and hear records that they didn't know again and, and try and put some, some of that life that had been lost back into the scene. Yeah, I think Stafford was many things. I think one of the things it was was it was a backlash against some of what was felt to be the poppy end of Northern that had been played at, and programmed at Wigan. Because you've you got, you got Butch, you've got Kev Dodge, you've got Guy Hennigan. Who else played at Stafford? Uh, Dave Thorley. Yeah, Dave Thorley. Yeah, yeah. Um, a few, a few gigs of Dave, yeah, yeah. Uh, Keith, and then there was some DJs that DJed in the room upstairs before we used to go down. I think it was two o'clock to, yeah. to the main room. But I think Stafford was many things. One of the things that Stafford definitely was that it changed the pace that people were prepared to accept for dance music. So things slowed down a lot. I mean, things slowed down ridiculously, really, at times to sort of beat ballad. Pace. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I noticed that. I mean, I, I would, I would obviously be playing in the room where Dave Thorley was playing, and, and, and not taking much interest in the, in the northern. But I did notice that just sitting around talking to people, and it was a definite change of pace. I mean, Kev Dodge has mentioned, you know, the neurons all of my life. Damon Fox packing up, and uh, the executive floor. We got a good thing going. Uh, you know, he tried to get buy all those records off Keith. So it just shows you how relevant Keith was even at that point. And um, I don't. I, was Keith a fan of beat ballads? Not, not, not really. No. Not really, no. No, I mean... I, because he'd come, he'd come on for the last hour and, and make people dance. He did, but Keith's spots were always... They were always good, and they were always fairly traditional t in terms of the sound. You know, it was definitely... You'd listen to them, and you'd think, yeah, that's definitely Northern. You know, it's not some ambiguous kind of beat ballad thing where you think, hmm, that's almost middle of the road, you know. It, it, well, Keith's ears were good, you know. He knew what would work on the dance floor... But without compromising himself to to be playing rubbish, you know that's that's how I, that was my take on Keith Spots. Generally, oh, I think I think you're right. His, his observation and, and his ability to to you know to pick the right records at the right time were, were phenomenal. We stay with Stafford. We stay this time with Tim's choices.
There we go, still remembering, still hissing on the vinyl as well. Uh, Bernie seems to think we, 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 we're speeding these up. No, we're not, Bernie. No. no. It's, it's you who speeds it up, sir. You who speeds it up. <laughs> One too many famous grouse, I think, in your case, <laughs> this evening. Or the cat sat on you, I don't know which. We're still here. It's 23-23. Tim's going to tell us all about that. But before he does, I'm just going to mention a few people. Um, obviously, Jeff Minchell, uh, Keith's brother, and uh, John Minchell, Pamela, Kelvin, and Michael. And, of course, uh, Keith's mum and dad, Evelyn and Jeff. Uh, I met them when they were on King Street in, in Kidsgrove, and I used to, used to dread going around to Keith's house because at that time um, they said they got two dogs, but they, they weren't dogs, no. These, these weren't dogs. <laughs> No, these are horses. These are horses with with fur coats, um, Afghan hounds, and and when when as soon as the door opened, they would put the paws on my shoulders, and I just thought this this is the end of my life. This is how it's going to end. Um, so two horses to greet you there. So Evelyn and Jeff, thank you very much. I know Keith, you know, right to the very end as well, and of, of his mum's life, always taking her to Blackpool, even if he had to take her on his own. I mean, the, the, the fondness for Blackpool was fantastic. Uh, some local people, uh, Mickey Colley, Dave Evans, Linda Evans, uh, Dave Brennan, Jed Skelly, Tess Skelly, uh, Suzanne Pacente, Graham Davison, my mate Davo, uh, who actually was the man who got me a copy of Eddie Parker's Love You Baby. Ian Turner, my ex-partner uh, in crime, I mean, we were at school together when we put the whole mobile disco thing together, and uh, Ian used to come with uh, me and Keith in the car, because at that time, I mean, as you said, Ian was working in uh, Mike Lloyd's, and he'd bring the pressings up and sell them off the stage. So, <laughs> instant record <laughs> shop. Uh, Phil Morgan, the late Phil Morgan, classic uh, friend of Keith from back in the Torch days. Um, we've got Crogger from Maidley. We've got Bob Sweetin. Uh, Chris Sweetin, of course, who was manager of both Changes and the Inset in Stoke, as well as being the manager for a short time at the Golden Torch. Martin Brennan, John Murphy, I've mentioned a few times tonight. I can't tell you how big a part John played in uh, Local Soul and still doing that today. Johnny Beggs, Mickey Flynn, um, John off the cloakroom as well, important guy, he used to work at Tesco as well, so it tells you the kind of training you got at the torch, you could get a job at Tesco just like that, <laughs> wasn't a problem. Chris Burton, of course, who we're ever grateful for opening that door, I mean, I did describe in an interview many years ago that um, it was going back or going into the torch for the first time was like going in the inside of my head. And I'd been at Mecca, um, you know, almost 12 months by this time, but um, there just felt like no restrictions. I mean, it just felt like a place where you could you could achieve and play anything. Also to Chris Williams, who did a great job, of course, up at the top rank in Hanley, and uh, that runs by a few local things. So tell us about those Stafford Sounds. Yeah, just before I do, Colin, just something you said there about the dogs. I know when I used to go around there, I think by then the Afghans had gone and it was Cocker Spaniels. So That would have been easier. Yeah, it wasn't too bad, but they still used to jump up, you know, so the, the door would be answered. Uh, they'd be jumping all over me and, and Keith would be lurking somewhere in the background. But fairly regularly, I'd turn up there as a range. This was, would usually be midweek if we were going on some sort of a mini road trip looking for records. And his mum would answer the door and say, he's just down the road. Which over time, I learned, was basically code for, he's at the bookies betting, <laughs> betting and invariably losing money on some donkey at the 330 at Epsom. That loss or subsequent other bet would then have to be funded inevitably by the selling of some record he had, and I'm sure you, you've experienced that with him, Cole. 
Yeah, yeah, with, with, with the betting, yeah, yeah. We had, we had a few um, a few skillful moments in betting shops, which I'm not going to go into because I, I, I want to stay out of prison. <laughs> so anyways, regards Stafford. Um, I'm not sure if many people know this, but Keith initially was a co-promoter along with Dave Thorley. He, he wasn't just a DJ there. And uh, so they were both running the top of the world Stafford all night as prior to to be it becoming the Stafford night we came to know. Um, so he teamed up with Dave Thorley and began promoting all-nighters under the Top Dog Soul banner in early 82 yeah. to, I think it was May 83. But then there was some falling out over the drifters failing to perform, which, Carl, I think you've got the second part well, of the Well, that story. was... I've got... I've got a load of notes. I, I you know, don't have time to read them all out on the air, but I think I said this at the funeral as well. I mean, he 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 was co-promoting, and uh, the, he, he he told Dave that that he he managed to get the Drifters. Uh, they were going to do it as a cash deal uh, and come to Stafford after doing another gig. I think in Birmingham. It may have been somewhere else, but I think it was in Birmingham. And um, the the all night has come along, and 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 Dave said, you know, what time do you think the drifters are going to get here? Oh, yeah, I don't know what time we get here, Keith. I'm not quite sure. Um, and time went on, and then Keith disappeared. Dave couldn't find him anywhere. Starting to sweat now. You know where are the drifters. And then uh, Keith came back. I think he'd, somebody had driven him somewhere. Had to get something to eat or, or to make an escape. I don't know which which it was. <laughs> um, and then he came back, and Dave just put him on the spot and said, Keith, Keith, you know. Are the drifters coming? And he shook his head and he said, no, they're not. He said, and, and when did you know that, Keith? He said, a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those magical moments. You just want to be there at that, at that particular moment, you know, when Dave's got to explain to everybody. Uh, I don't know if money was given back or what, what the eventual outcome of it was, but uh, the drifters weren't coming. But I can tell you, again... That isn't any malice, and I'm not making excuses for Keith. You don't have to make excuses for Keith. Keith was Keith, but he wouldn't have wanted to let anybody down. No. He would want everybody to think that this was going to happen, and and possibly even think himself that it still could happen. You know, it's still there was still a chance it was going to happen, but uh, no, it didn't happen, did it, Jeff? <laughs> no, and and then they had a falling out over it, and I think after that, Dave Dave sort of. Uh, Took over the promotion over, himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, at that point, you know, Keith's, Keith's sets were, were great, you know, people were, were enjoying him. He was still a very safe pair of hands, you know, dance floor-wise. And his spots tended to be a mix of records that other people had made big and perhaps dropped, you know, Richard some of Richard Serling's records, well, Dave we Withers' records. about that was what Keb said, yeah. Uh, you know, it... it, it, it pick up spare copies or, or, or when Richard was moving stuff on and, and know that there's still some life in it, um, you know, particularly at Stafford at that time. I mean, it was definitely uh, a breeding ground for, as, as you've already said, a change in tempo, a change in, uh, you know, change in general feel as to what could be played and, and, and again, opening that door where records, you could go somewhere and it wasn't the same records that you, you've known for 20, 30 years, you know, there was no. going to be some different stuff. We'll continue, it's uh, 11.30, so we've got half an hour yet to go. Um, some more Keith Mental Music. Disgusted 
Hello, Sharon. Suzanne says you're in Spain. I thought you were in Tunstall.
2340. Somebody in chat suggesting that four hours isn't long enough. Let me tell you, four weeks isn't long enough for this guy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But tonight we've got four hours. There may be another one. Who knows? There may be another one. And there may be other subject matters as well. Who knows? You never know. We're on the Hit Mix Radio. So uh, I'm just going to run through those quickly. First one was Baby Boy. Huge record for Keith and still a huge record today. And absolutely brilliant, brilliant lyrics, as you said, Tim. Uh, Thelma Lindsay, Prepared to Love You, Torch record, Torch All Nighter record. Uh, back in Vogue again, I remember in the last 12 months of his life, you know, him getting another copy of that and uh, rejuvenated again. I mean, and there is a difference, as someone else has pointed out in the chat, there is a difference in the pace of things. And Stafford was a different pace. The Torch All Nighters for 13 months was a different different pace to the torch before the all-nighters as the twisted wheel is a different pace and I think that's what makes this so fantastic and you know the way it's all evolved at Blackpool Mecca uh, the difference is there moving it much more into the 70s music uh, we then played Thummer Ride one of the classic and you did have to thumb a ride, as, as Mark says, uh, after the torch, you get yourself home again. Uh, that's if you could avoid the uh, trapeze police at the end of the street. And then um, Bernie Williams, ever again, two copies of that I was lucky to have. I paid £4 for that of John Anderson uh, back in the day. And then me and Keith took a trip one afternoon uh, on a sunny day down to Telford to Oldies Unlimited. And the guy who runs it was out, but the lady said we could go through to the house. And we found eight copies of Detroit Soul, All of My Life. And uh, Keith said, they always come back now, be quick. And I was in there. I think I got a hundred count box of uh, something on a wear, maybe the counts or something, like a funk record. And he said, come on now, he's, he's here, Colin. He, you know, he'll be questioning that, you know, that we, want, we want to buy eight copies of this. And as I turned to put the box back, it, the, all the records fell out onto the floor. And there was three records on Bell, two records by James and Bobby Purify and a Bernie Williams in Telford. Unbelievable. For no reason. Well, it is unbelievable. Yeah, he tried to take it off me. Said it was his. <laughs> I said there's been some confusion there, Mr. Mitchell. No, it's mine. I eventually traded that one with um, with Johnny Manship. Yes, yes. Um, we got one, two, three more from you, and then one record to finish on for Mr. Jeffrey Leach. But I'm going to start with this one because this is from another venue that Keith played plenty of great music, and that was the Queen's in Basford. <laughs> Oh, 
Pleasure of the Golden Torch is a new release. The incredible first choice. This is the house where love died and we nearly died. It's 23.54. Wrap me up on those last few, Tim, please. Yeah, very quickly, Carl. The, um, the first one was the Isley Brothers' My Love Is Your Love, which Keith made a big record at his Queen's Do's in Basford. And then we had the um, the Key Men Strings Try A Little Harder, which I first heard on Bally High on a Sunday night and I always loved it. I mean, it's probably my all-time number two record, but I used to play it out and Keith heard, it, heard me playing it out, saw the reaction and said to me, I want that. And I'd got a spare copy, so I gave it to him and he, 
I think he, he started playing it quite a lot at Radway Green Do's. And then the last one, the uh, OJs to Prove I Love You. Um, to me, that, that just exemplifies the fact that Keith would play a wide range of music and he wasn't hemmed into the oldies v newies, you know, modern, etc., etc. Et you know, that's a 1980 recording and Keith had no problem playing it because it's a great record. Hundred percent, and 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 I think you know I'm I'm loving the fact that you're loving records like that as well, and and, and I know you know Soul Sam hammered that record as well, so fantastic stuff. I've got two very quickly to finish on. Everybody in chat room, thanks for staying with us for the whole of the session. Take note of what you said. Yeah, the Ritz would be nice. Keith did play in the Royal Hotel and Dirty Duck. I played in the Dirty Duck as well, and uh, dirty it was. Um, but we had a good time behind the library wall there. But um, yeah, fantastic. F thanks for staying with us. Um, lots more to come and uh, no doubt you will be able to listen again to this show. Um, two more to go very, very quickly. The last one for Jeff Leach. Keith's final driver. on some of the live acts that appeared at the Torch, Chinas and Charlie Fox. The Drifters, the Chilites, Edwin Starr, Oscar Tony Jr., Major Lance, Otis Laville. Jimmy Cliff, Bob and Earl, Tommy Hunt, Doris Troy, James and Bobby Purify, Spencer Davis Group, Al Green, P.P. Arnold, DJs, Pete Stringfellow, Martin Ellis, Tony Jeb, Ian Turner, Barmy Barry, Keith Minchell, Alan Day. Dave Plum, Tony Terrett, Ian Levine, Neil Rushton. Some bloke named Curtis. Thanks for your time going out with this and a big shout to Keith Minchell who's made this show absolutely possible in his whole lifetime and what he dedicated to Northern Soul. There was nobody and there will be nobody like him. Say goodnight, Tim. Good night. Thank you. Thank you to you. Thanks for coming in. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Loved it, Carl. Strolling down the avenue When this house came into view I didn't notice right away That this was gonna be the place to stay
asked, did I like what I see? I told her, yes, I love the view. I want the house and I want you too. We got together and sealed the deal. That let her know that I was real. We pulled around and baby. 